All right, and welcome to Etc. Etc. I'm Alk Stone. Today I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite authors. But before we get to that, I just want to say I'm psyched more and more stores are stocking my Nick Cave's Bar memoir. I just got word that it'll be available at Brookline Booksmith in Boston, which is a bookstore I love to spend a lot of time at. The book is about the time in 1999 that a complete stranger told me Nick Cave owned a bar in Berlin. And without doing any further research whatsoever, my best friend and I flew from New Jersey to Germany to find it. The trip was predictably a disaster, not least because Nick Cave never owned a bar in Berlin. We got hold of some absinthe our second night there, then had two and a half days of a hallucinatory hangover that saw us wind up in Prague, you know, while we were trying to find a non-existent bar in Berlin. But it's a lot of fun to look back on now. Ladder Than War called it like a Louis Theroux weird weekend mixed with Withnal and I. I'm still cranking out young Southpaw stories. There's a William Blake special I did for Mikey Georgian's website. And here's part of this week's story, Loopy Loopy, asking some hard-hitting questions about the origins of pasteurization. It's weird that the process of pasteurization has nothing to do with cows. You know? Who are out in the pastures? Woo! Blows my mind, you know? I mean, Louis Pasteur? That's way too much of a coincidence. Was that like an alias? You know, how like Engelbert Humperdinck's real name is Arnold Dorsey? Or Cary Grant was born Archibald Leach? I mean, he could have opened up a bait shop. Or an alternative medicine practice? Or even combine the two? But old Louis chose Pasteur so he could get that cow connection. The double C, you know? Like C.C. DeVille. But his whole thing is like the opposite of poison. So, like, why would he be using an alias? Was he a spy? What do spies have to do with the process of pasteurization? Is James Bond then just an allegory for the dairy industry? Was the character of Mathis, you know, the French Secret Service, the Deuxième Bureau, you know? Based on Louis Pasteur's exploits? Maybe he'd go around incognito as like half of a pantomime cow. Front part, of course. I mean, he needs to be able to see what's going on. But then, like, who's the mystery man in the back? Pastures, fields... Was it Lenny Kravitz? 
the two of them just sidling up to some scientist laboratory window. I mean, no one's going to suspect a cow just standing there chewing some cud. But really, Pasteur's relaying all sorts of valuable information back to Kravitz, who's writing it all down, you know? In the notebooks next to his lyrics. I mean, I've heard that the back half of a pantomime cow is the perfect place to write songs. And this could lead to some trouble, you know, if like other scientists who are working on the process of pasteurization and, you know, want some milk to experiment with. They go and try and get it from this cow that's half Louis, half Lenny? Or maybe this whole pantomime cow thing never happened. I mean, I've heard crazier stories than a pantomime cow not being involved in the discovery of pasteurization. And like we're back to a lone gunman theory again. Or should I say, Axman? Because what if, like, Louis Pasteur is really just Lenny Kravitz in disguise? He time-traveled back to 19th century France to invent pasteurization. I mean, I guess you gotta wonder why. I mean, why would he do such a thing? Time travel certainly adds a whole other element to are you going to go my way? I was born long ago, very first line, you know? Or maybe he and Louis Pasteur were contemporaries back then, rivals even. And like despite both of them working hard in the lab day and night, Pasteur gets the pasteurization first. Which... Might have been known as Kravitzization? I guess. If it had gone the other way. But Kravitz wasn't going to be outdone. Oh no, it ain't over till it's over, you know? He decides he's going to go vegan, propel himself into the late 20th century, become a rock star. I mean, top that, Pasteur. If you want to hear more of this story, and believe me, there's more. We haven't even gotten to the Yogi Berra part yet. You can find the whole thing at the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, which is available at youngsouthpaw.com and all the other podcast places. So this week's guest is Mr. Steve Aylett, whose writing I've been a fan of for years. He's written a couple of the funniest books I've ever read. Lint and the Inflatable Volunteer. Lint is the fake biography of the failed sci-fi pulp writer Jeff Lint, whose work never got published until he started sending it in under the name Isaac Asimov. And there's just so many wonderful parts to that book, as Lint seems to be present at many of the major cultural events of the 20th century. One of my favorite things in any book is Lint's theory that the bullet that killed JFK was in fact the same bullet John Wilkes Booth fired at Lincoln in 1865, which then ricocheted around the world for the next 98 years, taking part in almost every major political assassination. Steve's humor is completely unique. 
And when I emailed him a few months ago and he told me he was on a remote Scottish island, I thought he was joking. But he wasn't. And it looks like he'll be heading back there, but I'm psyched we had a chance to catch up before he does. He's got three issues of a new comic coming out starting in July called Hyper Thick. Floating World Comics are putting it out. Really great stuff. Took me well over an hour to read this 36-page comic because I was just laughing so hard and there's just so many ideas and interesting sentences on each page. So let's get to it. All right, we're here today with Steve Aylett. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm down here in south- southern England. Sunny southern England. It's sunny. stranded here at the moment. Well, it's kind of, it's started to be spring, you know, a little bit. Um, which, uh, I, which I always used to, well, kind of, kind of by the lockdown or by the effect of lockdown on travel and everything, yeah. Um, so uh, I was living in Scotland and then I came down here and I've been kind of stuck here for a few months. So anyway, that's what's happening. But yeah, it's spring, and I, I sort of I find I don't absolutely hate and abhor spring as much as I used to. It used to just be very painful, but you know, like oh god, everything's starting again. You know, it's like oh, but now I I, I don't know. I don't mind so much now. Do you have an affection for what, autumn then, being the opposite way. I kind of like autumn. I kind of like like winter. It's like okay, it's you know, it's learned its lesson. It's gonna you know, let's just see if it stays down this time, you know. But no, it never does. <laughs> spring. No, that's my. That's kind of how I how I used to feel. I'm a little bit more uh, open to spring these days, and um, also I do. You know, I like uh, kind of like attempting to grow my own food. And things like that. So I'm kind of like a bit more tuned in with the seasons a little bit more these days, you know. What are you growing? Um, I kind of like I've I've got really into these kind of like perennial vegetables, um, like which are these vegetables that you don't have to like re sow or replant or whatever every year. They just you plant them, and once they're established, they just keep growing. Like even over the winter, they keep growing and you can just like harvest them all the time. And, you know, that's, that's my idea of a garden. It's just like, you know, and also they're incredibly hardy. There's like Siberian kales, which are sort of like, they grow in Siberia. So they just like, you know, they, once they're, they're like tanks, you know, they're like, like the equivalent of a tank in the, in the vegetable world, they just carry on and uh, they're virtually indestructible. So I like that kind of thing. And also I like, you know, growing stuff that doesn't need loads of attention because I'm quite lazy. But anyway, you know, I've, I got into that stuff. Yeah. I was uh, just uh, going over Novahead again last night. Um, you mentioned tanks in there. They move quicker than you think they do. Oh yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of, uh, research about tanks at one point i was going to write a whole book about that was basically set in a tank and um it was like it was one of my stupid attempts to kind of make a book proposal to give to a publisher and say look i'm going to write this book about this and then this happens and this happens and that never works for me because 
it's kind of trying to force something or construct something commercial or something like that and rather than just letting something grow out of some kind of fasc- real fascination or something you know so that that book never got beyond i think i think i got about three pages into it and then i then the characters just started doing interesting crazy things and it was like no this isn't gonna work uh, they're not gonna they're not gonna behave themselves you know <laughs> uh, so uh, that ne- that got never got written but uh, yeah no pack ch- ca- uh, tanks can go pretty fast yeah um and i was i'm trying to remember which was the main I'm trying to remember the, the main tank that i was looking at at the time uh, i can't remember now there's also been good movies with tanks in if you've ever seen uh, there's there's a clint eastwood film from about 1970 um oh my god what's it called uh him and telly savalis believe it or not get into some tanks and that and and donald sutherland as well as a kind of hippie-ish kind of even though it's set in the Second World War, and they're all going to go and find some gold, and it's called something like Murphy's Gold or something. I can't remember what it is, but anyway. Yeah. And they all and there's just loads of uh, there's a lot of tiger tanks in it, just going through walls. You know, it's quite beautiful in its own way. You know, uh, and uh, I think it's just about the only other thing that Telly Savalas ever did, other than. Kojak, so you know, it's yeah, he was in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, of course, he was, wasn't he? Yeah, but that was a bit. Was he was he talking about hypnotizing, hypnotizing someone so that they weren't afraid of chickens anymore? Is that am I remembering that rightly? Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah the clinic okay. on top of the Alp that hypnotized okay, that's, young that, women. that's the third thing that you did, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got a comic coming out, Hyperthick. Yeah, I have. Um, it's yeah, it's a three-issue comic, and it's coming out from Floating World, who are the same people who did the Caterer. And uh, the first one out, actually, I thought the first one was out in June, but it's it's actually coming out in July. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just started to be kind of to appear on the catalogs and things now for like pre-order. Anyway, yeah, I'm really pleased with with Hyperthick. It's just kind of so there's there's no there's no filler in it. That's for sure. It's like all the, it's got a really good hit rate. Yeah, you know the sentences the, and the stuff in it. It's just kind of um, so I'm really pleased with it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it had been a while since I'd done a comic. I think the last one I did was Johnny Viable. And um, I wanted to do something that was, I don't know, just very rich, really, you know. There's a lot. I mean, like all of your work, it took me a lot longer to get through than like, you know, your normal comic, you know, because you, you sort of appreciate, take the time to appreciate each line. And there's just so yeah, much. Hope, yeah, yeah, and it gets better. Uh, yeah, and it kind of I think it gets more colourful as it goes along as well, and and the characters do reappear in each 
in each issue. I mean, there's some of them, like, you know, I mean, about two thirds of the characters anyway, like Benny the Hen and Biloxi Blake and some of these others that just uh, are reappearing in each issue. And there is a con continuation and there's, there's callbacks, you know, and of certain jokes and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's been really good. It's been really good fun doing that. And I had actually, basically, I thought that I'd given up writing at one point, um, about maybe five years ago or something like that. I sort of just, I, I'm just not going to do this anymore, you know, um, because I, you know, it wasn't feeling as, there didn't seem to be like a balance in my life or something like that. It was like, I, I, it was just kind of like this horrible addiction that wasn't really giving it much back anymore, you know? Mm. And uh, to me, and, um, and various other stuff, just kind of my, I was living in Cambridge for a while and my whole life there kind of collapsed my, my with my girlfriend and everything. It just all collapsed. Um, I was, oh, I'm just going, I'm just not going to bother. Um, but then, I don't know, maybe a year ago or a bit longer ago than that, it just kind of restarted, you know. I made the mistake of writing something down, basically, in a little notebook. And it was just, oh, my God, you know, I'm lost now. It was like I've fallen off the wagon, you know. And then I was just filling up whole, like, big you know, big kind of inch thick notebooks per day, you know, it was like <laughs> just loads of stuff. And then it was like, oh, where am I going to put all this stuff, you know? And I can't really be bothered to, I mean, I could have, I could have put it in a, you know, I could have made a book, but I can't really be bothered to construct a whole big story anymore. It just seems absurd to me. Um, and I've never been, hugely interested in storyline in my books you know i mean I, I like reading some other books that have storyline but for, for my writing it's never been the main thing it's only ever been the thing to hang the ideas in and the jokes and images and stuff it's just oh god I suppose it's right. so i just thought well there's two there's two options i could either do a kind of a do sort of a comic where the characters I mean, the original idea was the characters would literally just be standing there in rooms saying these things to each other, virtually expressionless, and just kind of like, you know, like this. And I thought that would be so funny. Um, so it was either like do a comic or do a kind of like Emil Curran kind of book of quotations or fragments or something like that. And I thought, well, that's a bit kind of, that's a bit dull. So I went for the comic, and the, the characters ended up kind of being a lot more lively than I expected them to. They were jumping around and doing stuff. So it was visually a lot more interesting than just the characters sitting in rooms, although that would have been really funny to do that. And there's a little bit of – there's a bit of that occasionally. Hmm. Um, there's a thing where we meet – it's the thing where we meet Benny the Hen's parents – and it's just this, it only goes like about a page and a half, you know, about less, well, less than a page actually. But there's just, just this exchange where they're just, um, there's no change of expression and they're saying the most extreme things. 
squeeze your other. Yeah. But just completely, you know, it's I really like that kind of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> and it can work better. Um, if it's in an American setting, it can work better if it's in a, I don't know, I guess a business, in a business set, a setting where there's some kind of restriction, you know, and despite the restriction, people are coming out with this stuff, you know, I think that's, that can be really funny. So there's a bit of that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I really um, liked the beginning of the Luca Bazooka. Is that in a board meeting? Like the business um, I'm I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a big political meeting, isn't it? It's kind of, yeah, yeah, that thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of extremity. It's like it's like people just coming out with um, coming out with their motivation, just bare, barefaced and just stating it because they consider that the people they're talking to are too stupid to, you know, to kind of react appropriately and all this kind of thing, which is often what it's, you know, as it's been recently in political life, you know, just incredible. Uh, people are just, you know, swallow anything. And uh, it's also very funny. So, yeah. And then, they, well, let's not give away what happens next, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> how, how did you get into making comics in the first place? Well, I think it was through well, it was it was through the caterer. I mean, when I wrote Lint, um, you know, the invented author. Um, the way I remember it, anyway, is that a lot of people, uh, sort of, a few, quite a few people, believed it that Lint was real, especially in America, and. Um, got in touch saying, you know, where can I find this stuff? You know, it's amazing. And there were, there were some reviews that, that appeared saying, well, I've never heard of this Lint guy, but it's, you know, you know all this sort of thing. It's like, how, how extreme does it have to be before people will agree? You know, like there's that thing about J. Edgar Hoover laying in a bath full of liquidized doves or something. I mean, it's just like, come on, you know. Um, so... Anyway, so I, I mean, I, I kind of thought I, I mean, I could have like sat down and written an entire book as Lint, which I think some somebody did in regard to Kilgore Trout. I think someone wrote a Kilgore Trout book. Can't remember who it was now, but I, I can't be bothered to do write a whole book, you know, just for the just for that gag. So I did a, a an issue, one issue of the Caterer, you know. And um, doing it kind of collage style, and there, there was this. I mean, I I only read. I'm old enough to have read a few kind of comics during the seventies, though I did though they're kind of a bit of a distant memory. But I remember the kind of how they were very different than comics in England, and they really felt kind of imported and pulpy, you know. But um. I kind of looked back at some of these things and just kept on seeing this character who was usually in the background or who was a very minor character in lots of different comics, this kind of smiling, blonde-haired jock who just seemed really into himself and really pleased with himself for no explained reason. 
And I just thought, well, you know, um, and that's, yeah, and that's how I originally wrote the caterer stuff in Lint. But then I thought, well, why don't I actually use these things, you know? So I, I stuck them all together and made an issue and it was, and ca- called it a, called it a reprint, you know? Um, yeah, it was like yeah, issue number three, right? It wasn't even the some, Yeah, I think it was, yeah. <laughs> Uh, including whole scenes where he's just staring or leaning or, you know, all those <laughs> these kinds of things, you know. Yeah. So that was that was good fun. And people, you know, people really like that as well. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the Lint thing, cause I, I mean, I did write another, there was another Lint book as well, um, And Your Point Is, which is kind of essays about Lint. But, uh, yeah, I... Oh yeah, and there was a and there was a movie, yeah, as well, <laughs> well, like a home movie. But um, yeah, I, I I couldn't just carry on doing Lint things, so I had other stuff to do, you know. So uh, I remember yeah, I at the time Sorry. the Lint movie was released. The movie was released. Yeah, I, I asked you about doing comics, and you said that you had come to realize you were really good at drawing pigs. So you're going to work with that. So you're going to work with that. Oh, yeah, I did do a couple of pig comics called um, <clears throat> Get That Thing Away From Me. <laughs> and because uh, the only thing that I can draw quickly and with assurance is pigs. Uh, and it's a repeated thing, you know. So, um, yeah, I did a couple of those, but I, I think... I think issue one and issue two were like about eight eight years apart or something like that. It took me a long time to do the second one and it just took such, oh God, I mean, doing the initial drawings was okay, but it's always the colouring in and the shadows and all that stuff that takes a long time, you know. Mm. And um, yeah, it it just, it took so much to do it. Is I mean, I might do an issue three. I, I might do a third issue, you know, like in 10 years or something like that. I might get around to it. <laughs> and then a bound is there... collection, you know. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, put me in mind of Woodhouse as well. Is there like a fine English comedic tradition of pigs? <laughs> or is it just you and Woodhouse? Uh, I hadn't really made the connection with Woodhouse. I mean, that's kind of, I do like some, I do like some of the, um, more of the conversational stuff in Woodhouse where characters are very effortlessly saying very clever things, you know. Yeah. Um, although it's very, very thin, Woodhouse. I mean, there, there's not, there's no, I mean, it's virtually, it's, it's like a millimetre depth to it. It's just all bouncing across the surface and it never really goes, it never really, never really kind of, um, goes down into any depth at all but uh, i like that stuff but i hadn't really thought about the, the pig thing no i see I mean, you I, you bring kind up animals of, yeah i like i find animals really funny generally. especially hens <laughs> oh yeah hens are just there's something just mentioning a hen is just like you know oh that looks like a hen you know it's like well that's that's a strange thing to say you know usually uh, a hen going berserk <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's favorite it's animal. Like, it's a strange, it's a strange animal. And, uh, yeah. And most people don't have a clear picture 
of of a hang, like in detail either. So it's it's kind of strangely abstract as well in a peculiar way in terms of like the images that come come up for people. It comes up almost like a, a it comes up in a cartoonish way for a lot of people. So uh, that's an interesting little slant as well. Um, but yeah, animals I find funny generally. I mean, dogs and, you know, other stuff are just, just the fact that they exist is just hilarious, really. Yeah. I, get, I think I've, sometimes there's a little bit too much of that. I mean, the second episode of Biloxi Blake, I realised just had so many animals in it, some of them in it and some of them just mentioned, but it's just like this catalogue. I don't know why that happened, but you know, it just happens sometimes. But I, I think, like that. I think Biloxi Blake was my favorite bit in the comic. The um, the idea of a, a story being deranged, derailed uh, by an owl obsession. <laughs> I just found hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, owls. Yeah. And the line uh, uh, "clean as the gutter" in the dictionary, I thought was very, very good. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Um, I'm pretty straight as well. I mean, it, it, that could be that could be from a, you know, an old noir sort of, you know, it could be from some old, old sort of Raymond Chandler thing or something, couldn't it? Really, hmm. um, I think I've still got some of that bit of like material floating around, you know, occasionally. But um, who do you I like to read? Um. I don't know, various kinds of stuff. I mean, I read a lot. I've, I guess I've read a lot of science fiction over the years and um, went through a phase of reading sort of crime stuff. Uh, I read lots of philosophy and um, I don't know, it's difficult to narrow it down, really. Uh just looking up there, there's a book about Gurdjieff. There's Kamikaze Girls, The Man Who Sold the World, which is about David Bowie. I don't know, there's lots of different things. There's some Daniel Pinkwater, Greg Egan. Greg Egan, Greg Egan used to be an amazing, um, I guess, cyberpunk writer. He's not quite so good now, but it used to be just amazing, you know. He'd write about virtual, you know, virtual worlds and everything, and kind of it's like he almost took it as far as it could possibly go, and then, and as far as anyone has ever taken it, actually, Greg Egan, and then just kind of like lost, well, just didn't didn't really know what to do then. So he kind of almost had to backtrack, mm. write write lesser work. It's a little bit like. Um, uh, what happened to um, Thomas Ligotti, you know, okay. when he wrote, uh, my work is not yet done. It's like, well, what the hell is this thing? You know, I mean, he was, his earlier stuff was just amazing. And then he wrote, my work is not yet done. And it's like, well, is this him trying to be commercial? You know, it's because it was just like, wasn't, wasn't really anything there. I like it when people go full on, you know, with their weirdness hmm. um, rather than 
making a kind of try for the commercial because it inevitably gets quite watered down. I mean, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before there. But, you know. <laughs> Are you a Thomas Pynchon fan? No, not particularly. Um, the only one of his that, I've, that I really got into was um, Against the Day. That's one for of some, for yeah, that's the, the only one. I, and I've no idea why. Um, and it owes a lot to um, Michael Moorcock, actually, that. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan. Don't know why. Um, I mean, your humor is quite unique. Who makes you laugh? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It's the um, uh, the uh, I mean, in terms of writing, there isn't really much. Uh, in terms of like TV and films and things like that, the the first season of um, the Mighty Boosh, I'd say, which is set in a zoo, mm. um, and I don't know what else is there. Uh, I guess some of Spike Milligan's stuff was good. Yeah, that's a difficult question. Uh, it's kind of one of these things I've gone a little bit blank. But um, I mean, I do kind of, I kind of get surprised by some of my own jokes when I've forgotten them, you know. Because I do basically write for myself, you know, the books that I want to read. Um, and there's been embarrassing times when, at one point, when I was doing, and that wasn't stand up, it was like, well, before I, it was when I was just doing like spoken wordish things. Uh, I read, I quite often read from the Inflatable Volunteer, which is basically just, just routines. I mean, it's just like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's the only book that I've written, although I should have maybe warned people because I think people went into it expecting this This has a meaning, but it's actually the only book I've written that doesn't really have much of a meaning. It's just absurdist, crazy things, the inflatable volunteer. But um, I remember doing readings of that and being kind of surprised by things that came along and laughing at my own stuff, you know. <laughs> In, in front of the crowd it's you know it's really bad it's really bad form you know yeah. to do that yeah. but um it would just sometimes kind of sneak up on me um like i mean there was a there was some kind of thing with a guy a guy who's who's kissing a horse and using the stable like a sort of kissing booth and it's just like well, it's just such a you know it's just so stupid. I, I really like stuff that's just really stupid, you know. Um, I do and when, well. someone, when people remember to just do something stupid occasionally, like uh, if you look at the first season of um, uh, Rick and Morty, there was stuff in that that wasn't very clever particularly but it was just funny. Like in the first episode, there's Morty just lying on the ground for about what seems like a minute and a half with a broken leg, just sort of 
just howling and squirming around for longer than you'd expect. And it's just really funny, you know. Um, but when something later on gets, and the same thing happened with Mighty Bush, uh, when it becomes very conscious of its own style, it kind of very often stays clever, but forgets to be funny, you know, mm. uh, and thinks, well, all we have to do is show up. It's, it's what I call the S- Steve Martin syndrome. It's like just forgetting to be funny for like decades at a time, you know, just think oh, I'll just show up. I'm Steve Martin, you know, that'll be enough, but no, you know, you've got to actually do something. And then just, just every 20 years or so, he'll pull something out of the bag, you know, uh, and surprise everyone. But in between time, it's just this wasteland. Um, yeah. So a lot of these people just sort of get very, they, they become conscious of their own image, I guess. And they think that that's enough. They think that's enough to, to, uh, to do it. I mean, John happened over the last sort of year and a half with John Mullaney, uh, the stand-up guy and the guy who wrote for SNL. Mm. Um, he was really funny at one point, and a lot of the stuff that he wrote for SNL, you know, for um, Bill Hader and people like that during that. Well, you know, SNL goes from being good to being absolutely terrible and, and no laughs at all, like quite regularly. But during one of the good points, uh, when John Mullaney was writing for him, it was, it was good. And he's he was a good stand-up as well. But I think he kind of, I don't know, he, he kind of flipped into his image, like I'm saying, you know, mm. and, and also fell off the wagon, you know, started drinking and taking drugs again. So that, that didn't help. But, um, yeah, anyway. Sorry, I don't know where I've gone to that. <laughs> you had been doing stand-up for a while, right? I did I did for a brief time, like maybe a year and a half or something like that. Um, a com- comedian, Andrew O'Neill, who I can't remember if you know Andrew. I've never but met, Andrew, but I know his work, yeah. Right, yeah. Andrew O'Neill um, kind of invited me to perform at a comedy evening that they did called the Troy club. Oh yeah. I remember the Troy club. Yeah. And, uh, so I went along and sort of, you know, did, did some stuff and just sort of talk nonsense and whatever. And it was, it, yeah, it was in a metal bar at that point in Soho and, um, they're, they're doing it again recently, but, a different venue anyway but and it was good I mean I think I was sort of okay at it and people told me that I was good but I I sort of um, I didn't have any ambitions to be a stand-up for a start and secondly I really had to kind of work myself up I can't remember if we've talked about this before but it's just like you know I, I had to really kind of like uh, get myself in a particular kind of mental frame and sort of like, um, you know, sort of pretend to be the kind of person that can stand up and do stand up, basically. But that's that person is so different from the way I actually am, which is a fairly 
very quiet, kind of fairly introverted fellow, that it kind of, I felt like I was just doing an injury to myself every time I did it. Even though I kind of, I would sort of, I kind of get into it for the moment, in the moment of like, you know, oh, this is, you know, but I just felt, I'd always feel really bruised afterwards. Wow. And um, so I just stopped doing it. And uh, the last, the last two performances I did were like one night, were like over two nights. I did two nights in a row at quite a big thing there was like about 900 people there or something like that which for me is like a really big crowd and they weren't there for me they were there for like Stuart Lee and Robin Ince and Josie Long and those people you know but they those people were sort of fans of my writing so they invited me along you know but um again I really worked myself up into a thing and I only had like five minutes or something but I really tried to pack a load in and I was hyper and I was just like rubbish. You know, I was really bad. It was really, really bad. So after that, I just decided to not bother anymore. You know, I just thought, well, why am I doing this? Why am I just, you know, destroying myself to do this thing? It was like, so, uh, yeah, I stopped doing it. And I've, you know, and it's fine by me. Perfectly fine. Would you like strictly script out what you were going to say for your set? Like yeah, yeah, but allowing some wiggle room for things, you know. Um, but that's that's the other thing is like you know allowing for what the or what the audience, what the energy is of the audience. Unlike, I think the times when I bombed, it was through not reading that at all and uh, just plowing plowing through, you know. And yeah, yeah, I'm quite glad to not to not be doing that anymore. You know, it would take so much energy, and I don't have I don't have very much. I have to be quite careful where I spend my what little energy I do have. Um, so I'm kind of like, in a way, taking better care of myself at this point by not putting myself through things like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm happy to just do, you know, written written things that people can pick up or not, you know, out there in the world. Yeah. I mean, how is it for you? I mean, do you really, do you get energy back from doing it? Because, I mean, I'm as an introvert, I kind of like, I have a certain amount of energy. I go and do things and then I have less energy because I've done things. But I know that some extrovert people have a certain amount of energy. They go out and do things, and then, contrary to all the laws of physics, they end up with more energy. I mean, is that is that the case with you? I don't. Yeah, surprisingly, um, it does require a lot of energy. But then I'll find, especially if a show goes well, and because like I was often having to drive, you know, an hour and a half into New York City each way to perform. I would just be wired. And if I, like say I went on at like even like seven or eight at night, I would could not get to sleep until like six in the morning just because you know, oh, yeah. the whole experience. But what I often found, I mean, five minutes is tough and being a writer and like having what you want to say to fit it all in, but also allow 
for time for people to get it or laugh or anything else, or if they don't get it and they want you off the stage and you're still yeah. battling to get, you know, your five minute set piece in is, is a real struggle. Yeah. That was, uh, anyway, there are all kinds of weird circumstances there. I, f- I found actually the, the thing that I liked the most about those stand up nights was kind of like the backstage thing, the kind of green room thing just sitting around with a bunch of people and, you know, someone's playing the ukulele and someone's doing, you know, juggling something, you know, it's like being backstage at some sort of circus and it's just like, oh, and there's some, you know, vague kind of semi-celebrities and that wandering around and just looking normal. And uh, I really, I like that kind of, that, that stuff. It kind of... Um, it kind of reminded me of when I used to do kind of like plays at school uh, and there'd be the back, backstage thing, you know, like before the play with everyone wearing weird costumes and stuff like that backstage. It was like, well, this is a more colourful, you know, I wish the world was this colourful all the time, you know. Uh, it's why I like, um, you know, I really like sort of beachfront towns, kind of like... Um, uh, places like Brighton, where I used to live, the colour is just kind of the colour and the shapes. The variation of shapes is just upped slightly. There's a little bit more effort being made. You know, there's things in the shape of dolphins, mm. and you know, it's just like it's just a little bit. Just it seems to be like just the fact of the human thing coming right up against the sea. It's like we make a final last-ditch effort to be interesting, you know, in those last few inches, you know, by having stuff painted up a little bit more interestingly and in the shape of things in the shape of starfish and, and stuff, you know. Uh, I like that kind of stuff. Just I, I, I think I kind of need that at a bare minimum, you know. And you have synesthesia, right? You tend to see yeah. everything that way, right? Um, yeah, well, I, ideas and music mainly. I'm, um, I, well, ideas and words, sentences, the music. Yeah. Um, so I don't think in words, even I'm, I've become very good with words. Most of the time, I'm kind of, I'm always translating. Uh-huh. Um, this, this is another, another reason why social stuff probably takes a lot of energy from me because I'm constantly having to translate stuff into words and then back out of words and so on. Cause I, I totally think in shapes and colors and big kind of architectural shapes rolling around and fitting into each other. Um, but, uh, and I was talking to someone else about this the other um, little while ago that I, I'm not, I've never been completely convinced that anyone really thinks in words. I mean, do you think that you do? I used to think that I did, but now I'm not so sure. Um, it's it's a combination of which I'm not sure of the percentages. Um, I mean, when you're coming up with a routine like for a stand-up, um, are you... Actually, that's a slightly different thing because that can be very verbal because you're kind of like repeating the thing to yourself and so on. But, I mean, 
when you like way way before it gets to that stage where you're repeating the words to yourself and where you just come up with the thing is is it words or is it i think it's more a sound which is why my stuff is so heavily on things that sound similarly and that rolling into a completely other idea not necessarily the meaning of the word but the sound mm -hmm. Does that makes sense yeah kind of yeah yeah i'm just trying to I, I'm, I just sort of try to try to get an idea of the way that people experience it because I often just get blank stares. <laughs> back. Some people, some people have just never thought about how they how they think as well. I mean, some people just don't. And I swear that some people think by speaking. I'm, I swear that some people think by having conversations with people, and that's mm -hmm. like and the. And that, that's like the synapses, you know, is it, as it goes. So they can't make a decision about something or have an opinion about something until they've had a conversation about it, which seems very strange to me. So some, Because there's some people who can't think. There's some people who can't think when they're speaking. There's some people who can only think when they're speaking. There's some people who can't think when they're being physically touched. It's like all, there's all kinds of variations. You know, it's this neurodiversity thing. Um, all this different stuff, which seems to have only really just become very well known, because maybe it's from the from the internet with people just with so much discussion going back and forth. Of you know, do you see things this way? And do you, when you think of something, do you think this way? You know, um, but there's loads of variations. There's people who people who think in math, people who think in flavors you know or colors or whatever uh but they always have to translate it into words otherwise you know they can't communicate it so um so the assumption that's around generally is that everyone thinks in words you know do you have it where different letters are different colors no i don't okay what I, but I, I have, um, I have a thing where ideas are a certain shape. All ideas have a shape, you know, a three-dimensional sculptural shape. Oh. And sentences, I will often get the shape, the shape of a sentence. See the shape of the sentence before I know what the sentence is, and then I'll just have, have to slot down what the words are, not necessarily from beginning to end. Sometimes I'll start at the end, then the beginning, and then the middle. Um, it's a bit like that thing in um, there's that movie Limitless, where that guy is sitting there and he's just taking one of those Limitless pills, and all these words are just clicking down. You know, it's a, it can be a little bit like that when it's going fast. Mm. Um, I'll end up writing sentences in the wrong you know, like from the end to the front because it's just words slotting down into the shape of the sentence, which I've already thought of, but I don't know what the contents are until the words fall into it. Ah. Um, and often I'll have the shape of a whole book, um, but I won't have the details, you know, I'll just have the shape and the feeling that I want it to be, but, and then I'll have to work to make that shape, you know, um, 
but you know it varies a bit i've come re- only really recently come to realize i have this with the rhythm of a sentence like mm-hmm. that seems to be the all defining thing and i'll constantly search for a certain syllable lettered word to convey the meaning that i need there because other things won't really do oh yeah you mean like yeah you know that there's there has to be something here with a couple of syllables and then that for it to work as a thing yeah. but you don't know what the syllables are going to be almost like a punchline having that yeah, yeah build up yeah i've had a, a few things like that recently where well you know in um at the beginning of hyperthick on the like contents page as it were there's a thing at the bottom which is trying to think what it what it is in that in that case in in retrovision a little symbol that says in retrovision like that and there's a different one in each in each issue saying different things and uh though that's the kind of that's that's for me similar to what you're talking about i knew it had to be something vision and it had to have two had to have two syllables for it to click you know um and that kind of worked with the style of some of the visuals in the comic as well which is good it's nice when everything kind of comes together like that yeah i I want to ask how do you come up with your titles because hyperthick seems perfect for what that is but also, like, there's just so much in any of your work that I was wondering if there is like an overarching title all along, or yeah, they kind of they usually come together quite quite early on. Slautomatic, an overhead. Um, I think that I want them to be kind of rich. I don't want them to be one of these. There's there's been a actually. There's been a weird um, a fashion recently for fantasy books to be called a something of something and something, a court of flames and feathers, you know, a, you know, whatever, you know, a beach of dogs and barley. I don't know. It's just like it always, it always has to be like that. But um no, I, I like my things to be quite rich. In the case of Hyperthick, it was, it's, I've thought of using that title for a comic for, for years, actually. And when I thought of doing this comic, I thought, oh, well, that's the comic. You know, that, of course that is, you know, that's where it goes. Sometimes these things will hang around for years before they find a home where they're supposed to be. And, um, and as it says on the contents page in there, there's like a little definition of what it means. And so in, in England, as you probably know, thick can mean stupid. So hyper thick is really stupid. Um, in the States and some other places, thick can mean having a big ass. So hyper thick is a really, really big ass. Then the third definition is, and this is the, the kind, well, I guess I'd say the fourth definition is like very rich, obviously, you know, very rich and dense and with lots of stuff in it. But what I put as the third definition, and I realized years ago that this is completely wrong, is um, using um, when you're doing a kind of multidimensional 
story, like something like Flatland, where you're talking about a one or two dimensional thing in order to explain higher dimensional stuff. The two dimensional characters are given a, a certain hyper thickness, otherwise, they won't exist. So they're given a notional mental idea of having some thickness, otherwise, the story won't be able to happen, you know. Um, if they were genuinely two-dimensional, they wouldn't have any thickness at all. So they have a hyper-thickness in order for us to talk about venom, a round object coming in and that's three-dimensional, and then we can use that to think about four-dimensional stuff. Now, that's what I thought it meant. Um, for, for years, as a result of watching um, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, there's a thing where he does he talks about the Flatland story. And he says, well, you know, this, 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 I can't really do his voice, but, you know, yeah, the thing comes down on it. And these things have a certain, uh, he's, he's got a certain hyper-thickness. That's what I thought he was saying. But actually what he's, he said something like, these things have a certain height, but they're blah, 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 like that. And I misheard it. <laughs> so, for, so for years I was going around thinking, oh, yeah, you know, there's a hyper-thick, yeah, there's a hyper-thickness thing. And... And I was surprised I never saw the term in any of Rudy Rucker's books because I like his, I really like his stories. But he says he never really uses hyperthick in there. But um, even though I know that it's wrong, I, I, it's such a good word, you know. Um, I think the only real scientific uh, definition that it has is when there's, is, is medical when there's some like really, really slimy gore. Yeah, yeah, and I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really want to go with that one, so I, I went with the one that was just completely wrong. So, how about the characters that you've used? <laughs> um, how do you mean? Where did they come from? How? <laughs> well, mainly from kind of nineteen thirties. Um, out of copyright stuff. Um, I've gone gone way back with with this stuff. Okay. Uh, and um, but you know when when people hear about how this how this is done, it it actually just takes a hell of a long time. I mean, the writing is very quick and very easy, and there's just loads of what I think is good stuff there. But um, the thing that takes ages is doing the visuals. But I just seem to have backed myself into this corner where I'm doing it this way. You know, it would be so much quicker if I just got an illustrator just to just do this thing. But um, but there's certain stuff that is suggested by th some of these old pictures, you know, these characters just sort of standing there with a certain expression on their face or a certain lumpiness or just sort of like uh, it would be perfect if they were saying saying or doing something other than what they're saying or doing here. You know, it would be really funny. Um, but then, you know, so there's that. Then there's, there's the thing of, of kind of continuity. If stuff comes from different sources, but I'm using them for the same character, thing of having to make, you know, keep the continuity so that they don't look like different characters. And yeah. I know that in, uh, in a couple of the things I did previously, I know that in Johnny Viable, there's at least one panel where someone's 
shirt suddenly changes colour or suddenly they've got a moustache or something and then they haven't, you know. Was sort of, I wanted to avoid those things, so I've been very... I've, I've kept to the... really kept very closely to the continuity with these things. Um, but the other thing I like about this this newer stuff is that, I mean, I've I've always been really into the sort of... I've never been into characters that are just reactive who are just reacting because very often I'll, I'll read a book where it's like something happens and then this person reacts this way and I'm like oh please don't re- please don't do that you know we know what's going to happen next and then this is going to happen and then that and it's just like you know it, that could be done by a kind of mathematical formula or by a computer program or something like that you know but um I really like the idea of characters who react in completely the wrong way or who react quite sensibly or who react quite calmly or maybe don't even react at all. <laughs> you know, that's that's funny to me, but it's also kind of like, um, I don't know, it's sort of, it treats the reader with some intelligence and respect, you know. Rather than just us just sitting there watching idiots make mistakes and then the obvious outcome of those mistakes and just like you know, um, but I like um, and I've realised over the years that what that these characters, a lot of the ones that I write, are basically like trickster archetypes, mm. you know, of the various archetypes that exist, and the trickster archetypes are really the only archetypes of characters who are not just reacting they're absolutely operating from the ground up on their own dis- decisions and on their own sort of computing power their own their own mentality and what they want to do and what might be interesting and um, I think I've reached the point with probably reached the point with hyperthick of of 100% trickster you know all virtually all the characters are trickster archetypes all of them so they're interacting with each other and it makes it much more well it makes it much it makes it more difficult in a way but also a lot more fun to kind of juggle them because they're they're swapping who's the with from second to second they're swapping who's the straight man as it were you know mm. but then just but then, then jumping on top again and like da, 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 like this, and um, I really like that. It just makes it really rich and really, you know, you you don't know what's going to happen, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's, my, that's that's as it should be, you know. Yeah, one of my favorite bits was the um, microscopic lion in the back seat of the car ride. <laughs> <laughs> keeps persisting <laughs> he's forced to ask what it has to say <laughs> yeah and that guy keeps just trying to cl- trying to clamber over just looking back there yeah it just keeps on yeah it and keeps then of course they end up in court <laughs> yeah and you never see although there is actually a there is actually an explanation as to what might actually be happening in that which is interesting but I'm not going to go into it but all, a lot of this stuff can actually. Another thing about this is that it it can just be taken as really 
this kind of absurdist stuff. But a lot of it can also be decoded in one way or another. There's a kind of like a, but but it kind of it feels like it, it hits that sort of sweet spot of like really stupid and and absurd and kind of meaningful and sort of poetic and stupid and all these things at the same time, you know, which I really, really like. And it kind of has a good hit rate of, of that kind of quality in it. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty pleased with it. I actually, I had to put it down for a couple of minutes because I was laughing so hard at uh, if you drink a glass of water while walking off a cliff, it'll have the same effect as poison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like, good. Yeah, I'm not really like spoiling anything because there's like so many of these in the comic. Yeah. Well, at, at one point I was going to put like little like epigrams at the top or bottom of every page just to kind of get rid of them because I'm, you know, the more I can get rid I mean, I've still got so much of this stuff. Uh, you know, I want to get rid of as much of this stuff as possible. So it's really nice to come up with a form where I can get rid of, you know, dozens, at least dozens of these ideas on every page. And um, I'm done with them. Um, Do you have an ideal format for your work? Um I've, oh, I've, I've no idea. I mean, I, I've got very into the comic thing recently, but um, I just, just whatever's, just whatever's richest, you know. It's difficult to say, really. I mean, a movie would be an interesting thing to do, but that, that stuff never takes off. Every, every few years, I get some kind of bit of interest from someone about you know we want to make a movie of something um but when slaughtermatic came out that guy um joe S joe esterhouse joe esterhausen the script writer who did uh oh i don't know did various things in the early 90s um sort of saw a review of slaughtermatic in the I don't know, I think it was in the New York Times or something. It was some big review. And it made it look like a kind of heist thing, you know, like a really straightforward heist thing, like Dog Day Afternoon or something. And I got in touch with the uh, New York publisher. I said, oh, I've got to get hold of this thing. And, um, uh, you know, so they sent him a copy of it. And, you know, just silence after that, you know, once he actually saw what it was. Then I think he did, uh, was he the guy who did, yeah, I think he did, um, uh, what's that thing about the showgirls? I think he did showgirls instead. So um, you're welcome. Um, but, uh, and then there was, I don't know, there's been various things. And about five years ago, there was a company who wanted to make a movie of Bigot Hall, um, which would be a really good idea, actually. But uh, and it was um, Sadie, the, the actress Sadie Frost. It was her company. And um, I kind of 
you know, I even sort of wrote a few bits and pieces for it. And they sort of, you know, I had meetings with them and it sort of, they sort of wasted my time for a few months and then everything went quiet again. I've really come to recognise this quietness, you know. And uh, there was, and actually only about a month ago, I, there was a, or a couple of months ago, there was a sort of big firm in Hollywood who, that represented a bunch of big directors, like A-list a directors. Can't remember the name of the firm now, but anyway, they got in touch with um, with Snowbooks, who published Lint, and said, we want to make them, someone, someone here wants to make a movie of Lint. We can't tell you who it is. It's a big A-list director. You know, do the rights still exist? And they, and I said, yeah, you know, because, Basically, I, I still have the movie rights to Lynn. And um, things just complete silence after that. You know, I sent them one email and said, is anything happening? Oh, we haven't heard back from the... You know, so that's that was that. So And I recognised, oh, it's that silence, yeah. Uh, and I never uh, found out who it was. So, you know, but I don't know whether they kind of... Um, <clears throat> there's the possibility that they either thought it was real, then realised it wasn't. Um, or they saw that my little home movie version existed and that there were some names in it that were not massive, but, you know, Alan Moore was in it and so on. So it was kind of like maybe they thought, well, it's sort of been done. I don't know. But anyway, you just never know. It'd certainly be interesting to see what Hollywood would do with such a story. <laughs> like, if it Yeah. Was- no, I was thinking, well, what if they do it like a biopic, you know, and get, you know, like, yeah, who could play, you know, I think like, yeah, get Bill Hader to play, to play Lynn. He's got sort of like a, something going on with his face. But no, no, it's not gonna, I, I don't think it's ever going to happen, uh, anything like that. I don't think there's ever going to be any level of, any big commercial level of stuff during my, during my lifetime. It's definitely, I think once I'm out of the way, and I've said this before, but once I'm, once I'm out of the way, and it can all be repackaged in some way with some kind of framing story. I don't know. Um, maybe something will happen, but not while I'm not while I'm around. Uh. <laughs> but that's very. But that for me, that's very freeing. You know, it means I can just do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. I can do exactly what I want because there's, you know, no one is really, no one's really paying attention. <laughs> It's just like you know, but I mean, I've gen and I've genuinely let go of that now. That thing of, um, that idea of uh, big success or fame or anything like that, and it's really good to have finally genuinely let go of it because it's, um, I mean, I know that there'll probably be some some retrospective noise about it, but while I'm actually here in the world produce, producing this stuff, it's just me producing it and doing exactly what I want, you know. And I find that genuinely kind of a freeing thing. Um, it's so good. So what are you doing next? Doing next? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm going to 
I mean, I'm going off to the uh, to the chopping wood for a while, and um, you know, then I'll I'll just decide what to do later. But uh, I'm not forcing anything, and I'm not kind of. And also, also, I haven't put any energy going into maintaining some kind of image either uh, anymore, which is a, a, another good way of not spending energy on nonsense. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's fe- feeling a lot healthier, a lot healthier and a, and a lot weirder. I mean, I, I think I've only recently started to be completely accepting of my weirdness. Believe it or not, I think I've actually reined it in in the past. Wow. (laughs) And I'm now just, you know, just the full full thing. It's just there and just take it or leave it kind of thing, you know what I mean? Because, you know, who cares, really? Um. So that feels very healthy to me. Oh, good. Cool. Well, the comic's coming out July, you said? I th- Yeah, I think it's now July. I thought it was going to be June, but it's July. Yeah, the first issue. Okay. Cool. Um, and meanwhile, there's all my other stuff is still floating around if anyone wants it. Yeah. And I've just redone my – I did, redid my website – few months ago i don't know if you've seen it but it's you know i had that old website from about 1997 yeah i didn't which i just haven't redesigned or done anything to since then Uh, i finally got around to doing something with it so now i can just forget about it again for the next 10 years or something like that you know cool thanks so much for coming on the show anything else you want to add um i'll probably think of something but i can some some brilliant anecdote but i can't think of anything at the moment it's been very nice to talk to you all right hope you enjoyed that and if you haven't read any of steve's work do treat yourself it's hilarious and if you want to pick up my nick caves bar that would be very much appreciated it's available everywhere online and there's a list of bookshops on augstone.com where it's available at in store There's still more reviews coming in, which I'm psyched about. There's the book, and there's also a spoken word show of the highlights that's up over at augstone.bandcamp.com. More Southpaw is coming, too. There's currently 56 stories up at youngsouthpaw.com, a bunch over at YouTube. That William Blake video is coming soon, too. Should be up by the time this comes out, hopefully. Thanks very much for listening. If you want to subscribe to the show or share this episode, that'd be much appreciated. And definitely pick up Steve Ayla's Hyperthick when it comes out in July. Until next time. Hey.